Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Where's the Republican Party going to be after Trump? You have the worst economy that we've had in the history of the country. More people have died in the last four months than ever before in any four-month period in American history. How's this working out, guys? Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Stuart Stevens. Uh, Stuart Stevens is a fascinating guy. He was the chief strategist on Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. He was a very, very high-level Republican campaign strategist, ad maker, etc. for a long time, had at one point one of the top, if not the top, winning record in Republican Party politics. So he worked on uh, just an endless list of senator campaigns and gubernatorial campaigns, worked for George W. Bush. I mean, he was all over the place. And in the Trump era, he has been rethinking what that legacy is, what he did, what the Republican Party was really about all of that time. And he's written a new book, a searing book about the Republican Party called It Was All a Lie. Pretty much sums it up in the title. But this is a an intense conversation by, with somebody who was at the top of Republican Party politics and has undergone a full conversion experience, not just looking at the Republican Party right now and saying it has become something I don't recognize, but looking back at the Republican Party, looking back at his own role in the Republican Party and realizing that maybe it was that thing all along and maybe there is for him repentance and atonement to do right now. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Stuart Stevens. Stuart Stevens, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. Great to be here, man. So I want to start in the Romney campaign, which you ran. Why was Mitt Romney's presidential agenda so far to the right of his Massachusetts governing record? Well, we could argue about that, Ezra. Um, <laughs> I don't think... It no, I, I want the answer to it. I don't I, argue about I, it. Um, well, first of all, I think, I think Massachusetts is a very unique state. It's a wealthy state. It has... Uh, predominantly Democratic uh, legislature. The ability to govern there is different than the ability to govern as a president. So, you know, there was great discussion about Romney care versus Obamacare. I always thought it made sense what Romney said, which was that every state should be able to decide its own policy. And that what worked in Massachusetts with Romney care, which actually worked very well, wouldn't work for other states for a lot of reasons. That's how we do taxes. And it seemed to be logical. I think that when you're running for president, it's an entirely different duty that you have. Um, 
we could talk about each individual issue where you think he, he ran more to the right. And five hours later, here we are. The the reason the reason I ask that isn't to to relitigate Obamacare, although obviously that's one of my five top interests. I ask it because I'm interested in the relationship between the economic side of the Republican Party, which I think in the book you frame as more grounded, and the Republican Party you thought you were a part of and the racial social side of the Republican Party. So something Donald Trump does in 2016 is he makes the race baiting, the nationalism, the xenophobia explicit. He gives it pride of rhetorical place. But he also moves to the left of Romney and Paul Ryan and many other Republicans rhetorically, not once he's governing, right. on economics. And that's not something you, you assess as much in your book, but I'm curious what you think is the relationship between those two things, how you think the economic and the white identity sides of the Republican Party interact with each other. It's complicated, and the answer is I'm not sure. So let's just try to deconstruct it here. I think that there has been a failed economic policy that was based on tax cuts for re- not matched by corresponding cuts in the budget uh, that has resulted in I mean, it's a fact. Deficit goes up more under Republican presidents. I think that the economic side of what Trump did was really, I think, mainly around trade. And I think he just went out and made a lot of false promises that appeal to people. He'll say anything and put it in a a framework that as an American, you're a victim. And that's one of the extraordinary differences, I think, between uh, being a Republican in the Trump era and, say, being a Republican in Reagan era. I mean, if Ronald Reagan said that if you were an American, you were the luckiest person in the world, you'd won life's lottery. Donald Trump says if you're an American, you're a sucker, you're a victim. There are these powerful forces in the world, like Canada, that are taking advantage of us, and he's going to go out and settle the score. Um, it's grievance-mongering uh, to a high level that is an entirely different approach. The reason I'm I'm focusing on this just right here at the beginning is just before this podcast, I I did one with Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, who wrote this new book called Let Them Eat Tweets. And their argument in the book, which I wanted to run by you, is that the Republican Party in committing itself to a very unpopular economic agenda, essentially forced itself into social division as the primary strategy. That if you're going to go to people in an age of this much inequality, where the top 1% get more than 20% of the national income share, and say, we're cutting taxes for the rich, we're cutting healthcare subsidies for everybody, we got no plan for universal healthcare, we want to privatize social security, the whole deal, then your only chance to win an election is to activate racial division and try to break the country into two pieces around ethno-nationalism. And a lot of people who don't believe in that strategy, Mitt Romney being, I think, one of them, nevertheless ended up in a party that had no real other options. And as you write in the book, ends up doing some coded stuff around welfare reform, which maybe wasn't meant in this way, but certainly plays out in this way. How do you you take that thesis? Well, look, I I look at it differently. I approach it to the prism of race. I think that you go back to Eisenhower, he got almost 40% of the African-American vote. It drops off to 7% with Goldwater in 64, and it never comes back. So what does that mean? It means that the Republican Party is predominantly a party that is appealing to white people. Now, there was a period there where we admitted that was a failure. We aspired to do something else. We don't do that anymore. And I think that difference is actually important. But the lack of diversity in the party, I think, is at the root of this. So 
I use an example, say, you take a 35-year-old Republican school teacher and a 65-year-old Republican hedge fund manager. They probably have pretty similar ideas on taxes. Probably they're both white, and they probably believe in tax cuts. So you take the same in the Democratic Party. First, the odds are much greater that that 35-year-old teacher uh, will be non-white. Statistically, the odds are still great that the 65-year-old hedge fund manager will be white. But they're going to have very different views on taxes, I think. And I think that that's obviously complicated in the Democratic Party and creates tensions, but I think that there's a strength to that. So that lack of diversity in the Republican Party has enabled like the Grover Norquist to come in and force the party uh, or sort of bully the party into this doctrine of tax cuts that is not based in reality. I mean, if you go back to 94, right? Okay, you weren't born yet, but uh, Bill Clinton raised taxes. And in that election, the first election after, you know, 92 election, we made a million ads, I made a million ads saying that these Clinton tax increases were going to lead to economic Armageddon. We were wrong. What followed was the beginning of the greatest period of economic growth in the history of the country. And Clinton was the last president who really wrestled the deficit to something uh, manageable. To me, you have to look at facts. You have to say, look, that worked. And what's followed since hasn't worked with Republican presidents. But there's a failure to adapt to that. And I think it's just, in large part, part of a, a, a greater failure to adapt to the to the world as it is today, on, that the Republican Party uh, struggles with. Tell me about your process of personal conversion here, because you mentioned Bill Clinton, as you know, I wasn't born yet. I was born just late yep. in George W. Bush's second term. <laughs> and one of the things about your book that is different from a lot of books like it is there is a subgenre of literature that basically says, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. And your book is a conversion narrative where you look back now and say, I should have left the Republican Party. But after that Bill Clinton campaign, you were working for Republicans. After George W. Bush, you're working for Republicans. I mean, it, it's Trump. So, so tell me a bit about what it is with Trump that triggers not just a conversion on where the Republican Party is now, but on how you understand the Republican Party's history before that and your role in that history. Yeah, it's a great, complicated question. That's why I wrote a book, really. Um, you, you really nailed it there. I think that there's always been these two elements in the Republican Party that go back to, say, Eisenhower and McCarthy that played itself out. In many ways, when you get to the Bush campaign, 99-2000, you can argue that Republican, the center-right, was sort of a victim of its own success. So what do I mean by that? Okay, the, the Cold War was over, and let's say we won. There had been a tenet of welfare, you know, crime, welfare, taxes in the Republican Party. Well, Bill Clinton instituted welfare reform. He famously ran on ending welfare as we know it. Crime increased greatly and continued to increase. And taxes were much lower, certainly, than the 70% they had been once. So it sort of left the Republican Party struggling with what does it mean to be a conservative? So I think that then Governor Bush really looked at this, and that was part of the whole construct of compassionate conservatism. So then Bush gets elected. What's his first piece of legislation? The major piece, No Child Left Behind. And if you look at that photograph, it's extraordinary today. I mean, he's signing No Child Left Behind with Ted Kennedy standing over his right shoulder. I mean, that would be submitted like in a war crimes trial today. 
So uh, there was a, a belief that we had that there was this dark side, people like myself, dark side to the party, but it was a recessive gene. And that the inevitability of the party was to become a more inclusive, a bigger party, that we had to change and we would change. Now, all of this gets sidetracked when Bush becomes a wartime president. And you don't have another Republican presidency until Trump. So you go through this process of the autopsy, so-called, after Romney lost, which I think Ron's previous deserves credit for instituting that analysis. It's always hard for any group to be self-critical. What was it? It was pretty obvious. Party had to expand more appeal to non-whites, younger voters, women. But that was presented not only as a political necessity, but a moral mandate, that if you're going to earn the right to govern this big, confusing, loud, changing country, you needed to be more like it. So then Trump comes along, and you can almost hear this audible sigh of relief as everybody just throws that out the window. It's like, thank God, we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff. We can just win (laughs) with white voters, which to me just proves you really didn't mean this. And you have the ascension of this element of the party that was racist, that was a white grievance. And it's just an entirely different approach to government, approach to life, approach to politics, just as McCarthyism was different than Eisenhower. So we thought we were dominant, and I think we turned out to be the recessive gene, and we lost. I like this language of recessive and and, and dominant genes, and I want to move it into coalitions, right? We talk about political parties Mm -hmm. as singular entities, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, but they're coalitions. Um, Different groups have power over different things. Break down the Republican Party coalition for me. Who is in it, and what do those particular groups have control over? Well, first, I think you have to look at it and acknowledge that mostly these groups are going to be white. In the Bush campaign in 2004, we got up to over 40% of Hispanics, but it's dropped back down. I I think that's a really critical element. So we used to say that there were these different groups, right? There was a business person group. There was a populist outsiders group. There was a social conservative group and a a strong national defense group, sort of, you know, there was a four-legged stool. All of those were based on certain beliefs. And as far as I can tell, uh, you know, Trump has proven that we really didn't believe what we said that we believed for each of those. The fundamental truth of politics is that it's about addition, not subtraction. And somehow the Republican Party forgot that. And it's difficult to grow. It's difficult to change. It's difficult to admit you failed. But it's a necessity to grow. So if you just look how the Democratic Party changed, I mean, you can make a case that Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign was basically running against Bill Clinton's 92 campaign. What was, you know, more cops on the street became mass incarceration. What was in welfare as we know it became more about social injustice and uh, income inequality. The party changed and the country changed. The Republican Party's not grown. It's only shrunk to a less appealing, narrow message. And I, I, I think it's doomed. I know it's doomed by uh, its inability to change and its desiring to change. Let me try a theory out on you that is a bit related to this. So in my experience reporting on the basis of parties as a campaign reporter and then um, reporting on what party elites do in Congress and in the White House, one thing that has always struck me 
is a bigger difference between base Republicans and elite Republicans than base Democrats and, and elite Democrats. So you talk to a, a, like a like a liberal activist, and they might be more left or somewhat less left than Democratic members of Congress on some economic issues, but they're basically concerned and motivated by the same things. Like they want to expand healthcare, and congressional Democrats want to expand healthcare, and people have differences on political strategy to do that. That's oversimplifying it, and sometimes there are real distinctions, but but I think it's basically true. In the Republican Party, it has always seemed to me that the base of the Republican Party is motivated by white identity politics, in particular white resentment and fears of being displaced. And the Republican elites turn that political energy into tax cuts and corporate deregulation. And like that is their agenda. You mentioned Grover Norquist earlier. It is just, he's a startling figure given that he managed to create this pledge that every functionally elected Republican signs on to where they'll never raise taxes while tax increases on the rich are popular among Republican voters. And one theory I have just the current moment is that for a hundred different reasons, the rise of social media, money and other things, weakening institutional political parties, all kinds of different things happening, that the Republican base voter is taking more power that the elites who felt like they could kind of keep that energy under control no longer can. And like that happened in 2016 when Trump harnessed it and beat a bunch of Republican candidates who are better liked by other Republican elites. And it's how Trump has managed to keep a lot of the, the party cowed. And so what you're just seeing is the base of the Republican Party was caged for a long time and increasingly they're uncaged. Does that sound right or wrong to you? It's hard to argue with that. But you know, I look at it differently. I, I look at it as what we've had a lesson in is what leaders mean. So take the 1930s in America. There was a strong fascist element in America, but America didn't become fascist, unlike so many countries in Europe. Why? Well, probably because Roosevelt was president. Had Lindbergh been president, we would have been the same country, but we would have become fascist. So I look at these voters, and I've spent a lot of time with these voters. I mean, I kind of lived in that world. And I think that they had a side that was a white grievance, but they also had a side that wanted to aspire to something better, something that made you feel better about yourself and better to be an American. And they were both. So who are you going to appeal to? What side of you? You know, we all have that side inside, say, you know, a road rage moment. Somebody cuts you off. Mostly in society, we're taught that that's not your best self. What Trump came along and said, that's your best self. That's who you should be. Because if you let that person cut you off, you're a sucker. He validated that. He didn't make people racist, but he validated racism. And if we elected a bank robber president, probably bank robbing would become less socially scorned. So I, I think it shows uh, sort of the fragility of norms that is based upon leadership. Likewise, there was a, a fundamental role that the Republican Party should have played with Trump, a sort of circuit breaker function. And the party never played that role. I compare it to how we treated uh, that guy in Missouri who was a Republican nominee in 2012, Todd Akin, who said all that horrible stuff about women and rape. The party came out, Rice Papers came out, and everybody backed him up that the Republican Party's not going to support this person. It cost a Senate seat, but it was the right way to go. With Trump, to me, the critical moment is when Trump comes out in December 2015 for a Muslim ban. The party should have done the same thing. Everybody should have gone out and said, look, we can't stop you from voting for Trump. We can't 
stop Trump from running, but this is not who the Republican Party is. The Republican Party will not support this person if he's the nominee. Would that have made a difference? Who knows? But no one really followed when Mitt Romney came out in March of uh, 16. No one really followed it. So I think it really speaks to the different sides inside of everybody. And I don't think that's any different than a lot of movements. I mean, look at the civil rights movement. I've been reading a lot about it for a novel I'm, I'm writing now. So there was a, a, a side that was nonviolent, and there was a side that was uh, that really needed to go to armed rebellion. And it was a constant struggle. But you had the dominant side with the leaders like Martin Luther King who believed in a nonviolent movement. But they were constantly struggling with this other side. Um, and had a Stokely Carmichael played the role instead of a Martin Luther King, it would have gone down a different road. So I think it just reminds us how important leaders are and how fragile uh, this sort of civil bond is. And I think in America, we tend to take these things for granted. Let, let me offer something here that it's either a critique or a synthesis, and I'll let you choose which. But okay. <laughs> which leaders we get, what kind of leadership we get depends on how we choose leaders. You bring up Lindbergh uh, in, in the 30s, and I agree. And and if anybody here has not read Plot Against America by Philip Roth, you should. But nevertheless, one reason you don't get fascist leaders during that period and for some period thereafter is that they can't make it through a party convention. So Lindbergh might be a bit of a special case in, in, in certain ways. Um, but you have your Huey Longs, you have your Henry Fords, you have your father uh, Coughlin, I was told it was pronounced. I, I thought it was Coughlin, but somebody told me it was Coughlin. Anyway, you have a lot of players then who maybe they could whip up a mob, but they can't win a convention. And it's in the 70s and then social media in, in a kind of furthering way, breaking down other parts of party control. You talk about the parties playing a circuit breaker function. In another world, maybe Donald Trump does fine, but Republicans at the 2016 convention say, <laughs> absolutely fucking not. Of course not. And so one of the things here is I agree with you that leadership really matters. But there are a lot of leaders who ran in 2016 who would have chosen a different path and they weren't chosen. So this is a, a place where you have a real, I think, chicken and the egg problem. There's no doubt that leadership activates certain dynamics in the electorate. Um, I, I've always said this, at Mitt Romney in 2012, he chose to run a campaign focusing on the economic cleavage in American politics. Like you, you guys had the Maker's Day um, at the, uh, you built that rather, day at the convention. I mean, he wanted to fight this out as heroic entrepreneurs um, versus, uh, in, in Barack Obama's telling, exploited workers. And Donald Trump came and chose to refocus this on the, the racial and ethnic cleavage. But that didn't just reflect the decisions of those leaders. It also reflected how they were chosen and over long periods in American life. The capacity of the parties to act as circuit breakers has simply broken down, which is given, I wouldn't even call it the voters, but the most engaged parts of the base who operate in uh, primaries, who listen to talk radio, et cetera, a lot more power than they had before. Well, I think you're absolutely right, and that that you know, old, that book that called the party decides um, is proven to be we're no longer in that era. I look at sixteen, and I think in many ways uh, the debate played a role that the convention would have played in earlier er eras. So, just picture a world in which 
in the first debate, when Jeb Bush is standing next to Donald Trump, he gets asked whatever question he got asked. He says, I'll answer that. But first, I've got a question for you, Donald Trump. Will you apologize to me? Because you insulted my wife. And Trump would say, no, because I, I didn't think he would. You're a disgrace. You have no right, no, nothing, nothing, no right to be on this stage. You don't deserve to be on the stage. And the idea of you as president of the United States is a joke. All right, I'll answer the question. And then when you get to Ted Cruz, he goes, I'll answer that question. First, let me say something. You may hate me. You may love me. But we'll agree I am a conservative. Donald Trump isn't a conservative. Don't vote. Maybe vote for Donald Trump because he amuses you. You like him. Think he's got good looking hair. He's not a conservative. Now, I'll answer the question. But Donald Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine him winning. So what did 16 become about? It became about killing uh, each other so that you'll be alone with Donald Trump. Because there was a belief that the party would not nominate Donald Trump because, of course, the Republican Party is not going to nominate a failed casino owner who talks about having sex with his daughter in public. This is not going to happen. Well, it was wrong. So I think that it was a failure to admit what could happen. And in 16, in the, in the summer of 16, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I don't really go into it that much, I went around to prominent Republicans in key states. I tried to get somebody to run his favorite sons in each state, like Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan. The idea being that if you could just take two or three points away from Donald Trump, he couldn't win those states. So uh, the answer I always got was, look, Stuart, if we, the establishment, uh, block Donald Trump from winning, when he loses, it's not going to be because he had bad ideas. It's not going to be because of Breitbart, the alt-right, the racism. It'll be because of us. We've just got to let him lose and then rebuild. And I'm, yeah, okay, but like, what if he wins? I was like, he's not going to win. And I wasn't very good at arguing the other probably because I didn't think he would win. But then he did win. So I think it was really a moral test. And the party failed that moral test. And it, I think it's historic and, and defining and tragic. And I don't think it's easily recovered from. You know, history shows us once a major party endorses hate and legitimizes hate, which has happened now in the Republican Party, it's very difficult to get that under control. Uh, it doesn't go away easily. Let me ask you about that moral test and why so many figures failed it. So as you say, there was not a coordinated moment in the debates where all the Republicans took on Trump. But if you if you looked at the accumulated comments they made about him over the course of the primary, they were blistering. I think it was Rick Perry who called him a cancer on conservatism. I think it was Rand Paul who said a speck of dirt or dust is more qualified to be president. One of them called him a pathological liar. Another called him a narcissist. Lindsey Graham said terrible things about him. And then Rick Perry became his secretary of energy. Lindsey Graham became his like chief Senate defender and sycophant. Um, you know, Ted Cruz. <laughs> Ted Cruz put down terrible things Donald Trump said about his wife and his father to like work with Donald Trump. Like what what is happening here in the psyches of Republican politicians who are arrogant and self-confident people, as all politicians are, to submit so totally to this man? Listen, I, my answer to that is I'll never wonder how 1938 in Germany happened again. It just played itself out. These are weak people. They're not terrible people. I mean, if they saw you with a flat tire on the road, they'd stop and help you. If they lived next door to you, they'd be a good neighbor. But they're weak. And I think it's a tragedy. And, and they're heirs to the greatest generation. You know, people like my dad, 
you know, three years in the South Pacific, 28 island landings for my uncle, who was grievously wounded in Europe and never really recovered. They came back. They gave this great legacy to this generation. And they've just squandered it on the Republican side. I mean, I've said this before. Courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you got shot. And that's their legacy. I just think they're cowards. I don't know any other way to stand. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that. Maybe it's courage that's just process. Uh, but they are people who proved that they were very malleable and weak. And I think what Donald Trump realized about the Republican Party is that there really wasn't a soul to it. That there wasn't anything the Republican Party stood for except power. And if he would give them power, they would put up with him, they would support him, they would allow him to do whatever he wants. My one real disagreement there is I think he understood there was a soul to it. It was just different than what a lot of Republican elites wanted to believe that soul was. Yeah. It was build a wall. It was a whiter America. Yeah. It was they're taking something from me that des- that belongs to me and they don't deserve. And what Trump was right about that a lot of the Republicans were wrong about was that tax cuts were not at the core of the deal. But let me ask something about this cowardice issue, because I'm sure you talked to probably not some of the people I just mentioned, your 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 conversion on this has been pretty public, but but Republicans and very few people understand themselves as cowards, right? That is never somebody's true. That is never somebody's self-conception. So when you talk to people who are remaining in the Republican Party in good standing, working to pass its bills and so on, and they agree with you on Donald Trump and disagree with you on your thoroughgoing conversion on what the Republican Party is and represents, what argument do they make to you? What? How do they describe themselves? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. One of the things you hear a lot is, you don't understand it would be much worse if I wasn't here. So, you know, I've said, I'm going to start going out and saying I stopped an alien invasion yesterday because it's obvious we weren't invaded. I should get full credit. They just focus on whatever it is that they think justifies Donald Trump, whatever their little pet issue is. Maybe it's tax cuts. Maybe it's judges. Maybe it's this grant or something. What it is, is at its core, though, is just an addiction to power for power's sake. Because it's power for no definable purpose. This is why I look at the party and I really call it a cartel now. Why does the Republican Party exist? It, it exists to elect Republicans. That's like OPEC. Nobody says, what is the higher moral purpose of OPEC? It's to sell oil. What do narco cartels do? They sell dope. And I, I don't think that you can articulate what it means to be a conservative, what it means in, in any logical, defensible sense. It's just totally collapsed. And they wouldn't let it go. They wouldn't. I, I don't understand it. But you're an elections guy, Stuart. This isn't how you elect Republicans. I mean, this is one of the things you and I have actually talked about this before, so maybe we're going to reprise a bit of it, but it is striking to me that Kevin McCarthy in the House, that Mitch McConnell in the Senate seem to have no clear idea of what set of policy decisions made right now would get them and their members reelected and further empowered in November. If there was no Democratic House majority there to negotiate with, I have no idea what they would do. 
They don't know. And if and to the extent they do, where they talk about corporate liability on COVID and cutting unemployment benefits for people, it's electoral poison. So people keep saying that all Republicans want to do is elect more Republicans. But what they are doing is suicidal. They can read the polls. Joe Biden is up by nine to 10 points. This isn't working. And yet none of them are changing course. So if the Republican Party exists to elect Republicans, what the hell is it doing? I think it's dying is what it's doing. Look, Lehman Brothers existed to make money and it died. To me, there's a lot of similarities to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Republican Party. It's easier to predict how it ends and how long it takes just because the fundamentals are so flawed. But you've just really nailed it there. Because I mean, Take Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren has a coherent theory of government. You can hate it, you can love it, you can, but you can argue with it. And she'll defend it. And she'll do so in an intelligent way. Nobody can do that on the right with any credibility at all. And that's what I say, that there's a total collapse. That's why I compare it to the collapse of the Soviet Union, communism in the Soviet Union. What was communism? I mean, what it said it was and what it was is just so different, it just finally collapsed. And I don't think that we've seen anything like this in certainly modern political history or in American, arguably American history. There's nothing. I mean, and it's, it's epitomized by the Trump campaign. It has no policy. A guy's running for president of the United States. He got asked the easiest question in the world, what do you want to do as president by Sean Hannity? Uh, he couldn't remotely answer. And none of the Republicans can remotely answer. And I agree with you. It is an absolute, among other factors, killing the party. Which is why, how many new uh, Republicans are being attracted to the party? Not many. A lot more are being driven out. You know, they're, they're losing $5 on every sale and hoping to make it up on volume. And it's, uh, it's only going to get worse. You know, I saw this statistic that just absolutely floored me, that of Americans 15 and under, the majority are non-white. So think about that. I mean, the odds are good they're going to be 18 and non-white. And what does that mean for the Republican Party? It's just a death knell. So I think the future of the Republican Party is what nationally is what happened in California. It went from being the, the, the beating heart of the Republican Party and the electoral citadel to third place. And I think that you're still going to have a Republican Party. But until this changes, until the party has some sense of why it exists and some policy that is rational, that improves people's lives, I think it's just going to be dying a, a death. It's just a question of how long does that death take? How much is the Republican Party held in current place by its base? And, and, and by that, I mean this. Let's say Donald Trump loses big in 2020, and then it's 2024, maybe it's even 2028. And the Republican Party knows that it needs to follow some version of the autopsy. And so does it nominate Senator Tim Scott or Marco Rubio, do you think it could nominate somebody dramatically different on race, on their approach to a demographically changing America than Donald Trump, that the base would let them do that? No. And if they did, would it even work? No, absolutely not. You know, I talk about this in the book. I went back and I reread George Bush's acceptance speech in 2000, and it reads like a document from a lost civilization. It's all about humility, service, compassion. That person couldn't win 15% uh, with that message in a Republican primary. And here's a, like a really telling sign of this. So there's really two Republican parties out there. We don't ever talk about it, but there are these very successful governors. 
in blue states. So there's, there's Larry Hogan in Maryland, Phil Scott here in Vermont, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. I work for all those guys. So normally the party would look at them and go, look, they're winning in these states. If we could win these states, we'd never be defeated. But they're just ignored. But here's the really telling point. These governors cannot control their own state parties. They can't pick a state party chairman. They're Trump people. I mean, that was unheard of. A governor can't pick his own state party chairman. Are you kidding me? But it just shows the degree to which Trumpism has infiltrated the party. And I don't think it goes away easily. I think it's the equivalent of of what happened uh, with African-Americans in 64. You could have made a case that they would come back in some numbers because of cultural conservatism, faith, entrepreneurship. But they didn't. And I think the same thing is happening. So what is Trump's base? Trump's base is non-college-educated whites, which is the the fastest-shrinking large demographic in America. And there's just a complete phoniness to all this. So look at who's going to run in 2024. Like, say, take Josh Hawley. So here's a guy who went to Stanford, taught at St. George's in London. I think it was founded in the 14th or something. Went to Yale uh, Law School, wrote a really nice little biography of Teddy Roosevelt when he was 28, the Yale University Press published. And he's running against the elites. It's like, really, Josh? You're really going to do that? I mean, Stanford, Yale, St. George's. It's this whole idea that Republicans have, have seized upon that higher education is a negative. I mean, I look at that and I see the red guard of the Khmer Rouge. It is not a way to have a winning, uh, be on the winning side of history. When you look at higher education, it's like conversion therapy to socialism. It's just self-defeating. That's where I think the party's headed. And I think it's going to have to really lose. I don't, I've given up on the hope that there would be any point that Trump could cross that would get them to rise up. I think it's just going to be fear. Let, let me hold you on that point mm-hmm. about nothing Trump can do can get folks to rise up. So part of the Republican Party's self-conception and part of its coalitional makeup has been a deep rootedness in Christian faith. And you talk about this in the book. You talk about uh, Bob Bennett writing about the what, the seven virtues and talking about how the fundamental grounding of leadership is in character. He rises up as an, an, an answer, a critic of Bill Clinton. The entire Republican Party in that Clinton era um, reconstructs itself around this criticism, but it is really powered on some level by a deep coalitional dynamic with the Christian right. And then Donald Trump comes along showing not only none of these virtues, but he's like a parade of the seven deadly sins, right? It's just lust everywhere, greed everywhere. I mean, the guy's toilet is gold. His toilet's gold. Like, who, who... <laughs> it, it's all, and these same people, the in many cases the leaders of the same organizations, Bob Bennett himself, say vote for him. So, so that and a certain kind of competence, or at least a display of it, right? A, a, a you know, Mitt Romney. I wrote a profile of Mitt Romney uh, in 2012. It was all about how I always felt that his grounding in politics, like his core, was not ideological so much as it was his belief that he was a great manager and this was a managerial job and like that, like his background is management consulting. You can manage anything and he was going to manage this. 
the Republican Party completely abandons even an aesthetic preference for uh, any kind of moral life or um, actual governing competence. Why? Was it ever real in the first no, place? Or was, I, I don't think or was it all a lie? As a, no, this as is why I call says. the book It Was All a Lie. How do you write these beautiful words that William Bennett did about Clinton, about culture as the soul of a nation? And then support Donald Wait, Trump. William Bennett. Which one's Bob Bennett? Bob Bennett William is Bennett, his brother? I mean, it. Bob Bennett's the lawyer agent. William Bennett. Yeah, yeah, okay. The brothers. Uh, William Bennett, sorry. Yeah. How do you square that circle? Uh, you can't. It just means you didn't believe it. There's no reason you would have changed. What Trump is like is like Jimmy Schweikert. He's like one of these fraudulent evangelical preachers. He even looks like them. For some reason, these people tend to have these larger-than-life sort of painted, weird personas. And I think it's sort of like part of their whole effect, that they are larger than life, that they are different than you and I, therefore they can live by different rules. So look, yeah, the president of the United States, head of the Republican Party, the last two weeks from the podium in the White House of the United States, the most sacred ground of democracy in the world, is wishing best wishes to a woman arrested being at the center of an international child rape ring. That's the Republican Party. And I, how that doesn't make Republican leaders just want to throw up. I mean, if, if you're not going to speak out and not oppose that, why did you run for office? Where, look, I mean, look at Roy Moore. It's like a Saturday Night Live sketch. What would it get to get re- Republicans to back a moderate Democrat? Okay, what if he was a child molester? <laughs> Is it, well, nope, that's okay. You know, 67% of white Alabamians supported uh, Roy Moore, who's an alleged child molester, I'll say. Um, uh, it was all a lie. That's the only conclusion I can come to. They didn't believe it. So I want to try to inhabit the perspective of a more thoroughgoing Republican reading and thinking about this book and what they might say to it and how you might answer it. And one one easy place to start is Matthew Scully, a former Bush speechwriter, did some speechwriting work for Romney, wrote uh, an angry review in the, in the National Review. And his basic argument was your book shows why Mitt Romney lost, which is that his campaign at its center was verging on contempt for the Republican base. And it's Mitt Romney's loss that leads to Trump, that leads to the Republican base deciding enough with these like nice guys, we're going with a street fighter. What's your reply to Scully? Uh, well, look, first of all, it's extraordinary that the National Review published that because, you know, Matt Scully was fired from the Romney campaign. He was literally banned from the plane. He wrote, he was hired, and he wrote a speech uh, for Paul Ryan. He also wrote a speech for uh, acceptance speech for Governor Romney. Governor Romney went in a different direction. I thought Matthew Scully wrote a fine speech. It didn't get used. He was very bitter about it, so much so that he was removed from uh, the campaign plane. And, you know, Scully has this history of writing these bitter attacks on former workers, so much so that when he was hired in 2012, Timothy Noah, who was writing for the New Republic, wrote a piece I should have read that said, look out, Stuart Stevens. Look at what Matt Scully's going to do. And damn if Tim Noah didn't name it, nail it. Scully's a very interesting, complicated guy. You know, he's a, a deeply committed animal rights activist who wrote— Yes, which is something I admire about him. Yeah, who wrote really one of the most beautiful books, Dominion. So it's just very 
he's, he's a trouble guy. Um, but putting that aside, listen, Mitt Romney lost with 47.2%. Trump won with 46.1%. So the idea that Trump sort of did a better job, I, I kind of don't get this. And all the industry of why Trump won, on one level, he won for one simple reason. He ran a year in which a Republican could win with 46.1%. And had Mitt Romney run in that year, he would have won easily. He didn't. So I think uh, we should be cautious about drawing the wrong conclusions. It's kind of like going to a party and drinking and getting home safely and deciding alcohol helps you drive. That's probably the wrong conclusion to come to. You know, Scully also is just in complete denial. He even wrote in this piece that, that Ronald Reagan never talked about welfare queens. Well, he sure did. I mean, that's just a fact. And he said that the Republican Party didn't have a racist element. I mean, really? I mean, the same weekend that my home state of Mississippi takes down the flag, which was very moving for a lot of us, because the, the flag was basically the Confederate battle flag. Here you have the most Southern state, the last uh, Confederate flag to come down. And Donald Trump, the same week, is defending the Confederate flag. So much so that NASCAR, he's on the wrong side of NASCAR. So it's just this fantasy. I would say that what Scully proves is just the inability of people who are committed to the Republican Party to admit what the Republican Party has become and to fight for it and to say it's wrong. And you're just sort of going to deny it. I don't get it. One thing you, th you see in that tendency is the lure of anti-anti-Trumpism. So look, I don't love Donald Trump, don't love what he does, but the liberal elites attacking him, the media treating him so unfairly, treating us and our party with contempt, that that just shows that even if he's not the guy I want, he's the guy still on my side of the fight. And there's a policy version of this too. I don't like Donald Trump, but I don't want to see Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden giving the Supreme Court to abortionists. Look, um, you don't have to be a racist to support Donald Trump, but you have to be comfortable with getting something from Donald Trump that is more important than having a racist as president. And I think that's very telling. It becomes all transactional. And, you know, one of the things that conservatives always accuse liberals of is situational ethics, uh, probably unfairly, but we did. So Donald Trump is the ultimate situational ethics, that we're just going to have this bargain. We're going to have this transaction. And I'm going to get this. It never works. It's Faust. Mephistopheles not only takes your soul, he doesn't deliver. And look what's happened. Where's the Republican Party going to be after Trump? You have the worst economy that we've had in the history of the country. More people have died in the last four months than ever before in any four-month period in American history. How, how's this working out, guys? Is this really good? And your, the Republican Party's headed to what could very well be a historic defeat. And it's not just going to be a defeat. It's going to be the lingering stain of having defended Donald Trump. And all these people think that they can negotiate with it. It's the same thing that happened with segregation. You know, a lot of people, George Wallace did some good stuff as governor. He passed free textbooks. Nobody's remembered as a free textbook George Wallace supporter. You're the George Wallace supporter. And it's the same with Trump. You can't negotiate with Trump because it, it, what he is is so distinct and so demeaning that if you accept it, you are demeaned. You have defined yourself. It, Trump's never going to change. He's always been the same person. He gets worse now because he's in some kind of decline. But it's about you. It's about the Republican Party. 
And Trump understood that. He understood that the Republican Party, uh, he could manipulate it. He was right. You write in the book about how you used race in the first campaign you were part of, which was by putting out an ad highlighting there was a black third party candidate, a black independent, to try to suck away votes um, uh, from the Democrat. And when I was reading that, I was thinking about what's happening right now with Kanye West, where we're seeing all these, it turns out all these Republican lawyers and Trump-associated figures helping him get on the ballot in key states, hoping he plays a spoiler role. And I'm, I'm curious what you think of that effort and what you think it potentially reveals. Well, it reveals that the uh, Republican Party admits that it can't attract African-Americans. And it's the same truth that I came to in 1978 by looking at a poll. 90% of these African-Americans were either going to vote for the Democrat or they were going to vote for an independent African-American candidate. So I took it upon myself to educate African-Americans that there was an African-American candidate in the race. Was that playing the race card? I say it was. Now, I didn't say anything disparaging about this person. I actually ran an ad that was sort of like a League of Women Voters ad, just with three candidates in their backgrounds. But it was manipulating race. And that's what they're doing here. This entire race is about the non-white vote. The reason Donald Trump is president, to a large degree, is uh, because he could win with 46.1%. Why was that? Third party increased and non-white vote decreased for the first time in 20 years. I mean, I always look at Wisconsin. Romney loses by seven. Trump wins it by a little over one, but Romney got more votes. You know, 50,000 voters didn't show up in the greater Milwaukee area. So in part, that's because of uh, voter ID laws they put in. Not entirely. I mean, there was more passion to reelect the first African-American to vote for Hillary Clinton. That's understandable. But that's, that's Trump. That's what they're going to do. They're going to try to suppress non-white vote every way they can, legal, illegal, uh, and everywhere in between, because they ha they see that as the only way they can win. And it just sort of epitomizes uh, the end of any effort that Republican Party had to grow. And that's not a new problem, but the sort of even to quit trying, even to quit being self-critical, Trump just gets up there and says, I've done more for blacks than any president in history. It's just a, it's a complete collapse. You did, just, did you see in the in the Jonathan Swan interview where Swan said said even Lyndon Johnson who passed the Civil Rights Act and Trump's like yeah yeah even more than him. Well, I liked it when he said you know more than than uh, Abraham Lincoln and uh, the African American reporter said well he did free us. It's wild. Um, you're working with a, a group of anti-Trump Republicans and former Republicans producing ads uh, to to try and beat him. What do you think his weaknesses are that somebody who comes out of democratic politics may not see as clearly? Well, first of all, if I just woke up in the middle of the night, Ezra, and I said, look, President of the United States is running for re-election. It's the worst economy in the history of the country. And there's a pandemic that is killing more Americans than have ever died before in a shorter period of time. How do you think he's doing in the re-elect? You wouldn't say, hey, this guy's got it in the back. <laughs> you know, you'd say, I'd say that guy's got problems. So in many ways, what's playing out is sort of, you know, what should play out. I think that uh, Donald Trump violates a fundamental sense of decency that Americans, for the most part, believe in. I think he's completely misplayed the race issue in the suburbs. You know, I'm, I'm from Mississippi. I know these people, right? You take your average teenager living in a suburb of Jackson or something, that person, that kid 
you know, his cultural uh, idols are, are more black rap stars than Robert E. Lee. I mean, they're swimming in the same cultural sea as the rest of the country. And he, he doesn't, uh, he's on the wrong side of Walmart and NASCAR. Voting for Trump doesn't make you feel better for a lot of people. You can vote because out of necessity, I think there's going to be some evil thing. But that's going to be very difficult with Joe Biden. I mean, even the nickname, Sleepy Joe Biden, that's not a name that actually, you know, sends women and children screaming from the room. I think what could very well be happening here is, you know, Biden's run for president before and he wasn't very good at it. But there's a history of this, uh, of candidates finding a moment late in their careers uh, where the moment meets the person. Take Churchill. He was, you know, this kind of bellicose wacko in 1936 and he's saving the joe, joe biden the churchill of our age well i think you know what is the issue that america needs right now america needs to heal america needs decency america is, is in a period of great grief and that is something that, that, that joe biden has legitimate standing on he has led a tragic life in many ways experienced tragedy and it could very well be that what this race is going to be is a referendum on decency and that's one race that Donald Trump can't win. One thing that I've wondered about with Joe Biden, and I'd be curious for your take on this as a political professional, is what often frustrates like, elite Democrats or elite liberals about him, or very engaged liberals also, is that he doesn't come out and really fight. He's not He's not there activating them, like grabbing onto the electric currents of American politics. But at the same time, the flip of that strategy is he doesn't give wavering Republicans much to vote against. It is, as you say, been very hard for Trump to saddle him with a nickname. Sometimes their argument is sleepy Joe Biden can't finish a sentence, but it's going to socialize a means of production. Like it's a very weird, it's a very weird, um, internally messed up uh, argument. And so is there, is that actually the right trade-off right now that when you are running against such a polarizing and antagonizing incumbent, that it's actually a little bit better to just try to be somebody who people can be comfortable with, even if you're trading off a little bit of the excitement of running a polarizing campaign. One of the things I admire about the Biden campaign, and, and I have a lot of admiration for him, they are admitting, and he's admitting, that he's a transitional figure. Now, why do I admire that? Well, because candidates should say stuff that like fifth graders know is true. But there's a reluctance for a lot of people to admit that. I want to be president so I can be a transitional figure. But he's doing that. Um, th there's, there's something that's really interesting, I think, that's happened here that people haven't really focused on. And that is what normally would be a negative in a lot of years, I think is going to be a plus for Biden. Like the fact that he's been in government since, you know, 28 years old. Usually the least experienced candidate wins the presidency. It's weird, but it's true. But probably the idea of someone who is going to be president, who actually knows how to be president, is going to be uniquely valued right now. And I think that there's an exhaustion here. I mean, one of the benefits of a civil society should be that you don't have to think about politics all the time. And Trump denies you that right. He makes you think. He has to be in your face. And I think people are exhausted by it. And I, I think that, that Biden is, is, a, is a relief from that. I don't think that you have to think that Biden's going to save the world or change the world that much. But Biden is going to be a return to normalcy. And I think that people have a desperate longing for a, a lost normal now. I guess it's a good place to come to a close. So 
Our final question is always, what are three book recommendations you would give to the audience? I've been reading all these books about World War II and uh, Germany. The most powerful book that I've, I've read are the memoirs of Franz von Papen, who was the uh, German uh, uh, most responsible probably for the uh, ascension of uh, Hitler. In 1953, he wrote a memoir, Memoirs of Franz von Papen, which astoundingly you can get on Kindle. And it's, it's extraordinary because even after everything that happened, 1953, he's still trying to justify why Hitler had to come to power. You have to understand it was the Bolsheviks. If it hadn't been uh, for Hitler, we would have been fighting the Russia. Uh, you know, and I think that's just so telling of where we are now. So uh, I, I think I would recommend everybody read that book. And I've been reading a novel uh, by a Mississippian uh, named Greg Isles called Black Cross, which is a fantastic novel about uh, set in World War II about a uh, pre-invasion of Normandy uh, effort to deny the Germans use of nerve gas. And, and Greg is a fantastic writer. It's a great, a great complex sweeping tale. Stuart Stevens, thank you very much. Thank you, I really appreciate it, buddy. Thank you to Stuart Stevens for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.